You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Your body is unique. So why would you settle for a weight loss plan that's one size fits all? Noom is the weight management program that takes into account your biology to build a custom plan just for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Hello, this is Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Jesse David Fox. This is part two of my two-part conversation with Vulture TV critic Catherine Van Arendonk about Vulture's list of the best stand-up specials of 2019. If you missed part one from earlier in the week, we went through 10 through 6, which included In Order, Not Normal by Wanda Sykes, My Favorite Chase by Julio Torres, Ice Thickeners by Emily Heller, Paper Tiger by Bill Burr, and Roy Wood Jr.'s No One Loves You. In this exciting conclusion, as these things go, we'll start at number five and work our way down to number one and just talk and talk and talk about what we love about these comedians and what makes great stand-up great. Good One will be back with our traditional interview episodes soon, but until then, I, I hope you're enjoying these bonus episodes and I appreciate your patience. So here is Catherine and I and the best stand-up specials of 2019. Number five, Nikki Glaser's Bangin'. Yes, Bangin'. Why? Well, to... Talk once again about this idea that a special can be one idea, Yeah, that it can be one thing that you exhaust, that you explore so thoroughly that part of the joke is that by about 40 minutes in, you think there can be nothing else to say about this. And then the mastery that's being displayed is actually I've got 20 more, yeah, yeah. 20 more minutes and they are, if anything, weirder and funnier and stranger than this all of the setup. And so... I think there is also a way that um, women in particular have to try to demonstrate their coolness and funniness by talking about sex. And at the beginning, I was like, that is what is happening here. This is just sheer like I'm one of the cool, cool ones Mm -hmm. and I'm in on the joke. Except the way that all of these jokes work is you start with this like I'm one of the cool ones and I totally have sex all the time and and I think it's amazing. And then each time those jokes get filtered through and flipped so that it actually is about how often giving blowjobs is uh, clearly asphyxiating women or about the way that um, being sober changes your experience Mm. of sex. That she is still trying to, that she is still finding all of these sources of humor in, but that you watch her perspective actually change halfway through this the special. So that I think is, I was really impressed. I was, I was, I was upset at the beginning, <laughs> and then as soon as I figured out what it was actually going to be, yeah. I began to see was much more like. Like in music, you do this thing where you have a theme and variations, and the 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 entire impressive thing about it is the way you take this one very simple idea and then just create it into a whole elaborate motifs that you could never have expected. This is theme and variations on banging. Yeah. I just I have no rhythm. I have no natural rhythm, and so I I actually was like, thank you, take the wheel. I don't know what you want. <laughs> I just don't have a good sense of rhythm. I might be able to show you a good time if you have like a metronome on your nightstand, but it's just not. (laughs) Most girls do not like when you grab their head and just hold it and fuck it. But I truly appreciate the gesture and because then I can focus on what I'm actually good at, which is going to be surviving this blowjob because my breathing is now up to you, good sir. (laughs) 
because you don't seem to understand that I can't breathe when your dick is in my head. So I hope you let me get a couple gasps in here and there. I always feel like I'm lost at sea when I'm sucking dick and I'm just like emerging like Coast Guard and just getting sucked back under. I gotta time them perfectly. Sex is her muse. You know, like if you watch old specials, it's a little bit closer to what you think because it's mixed in with other stuff and it talks about dating more and this is not really a special about dating. It really is not. Like it, and I think she is so good at writing jokes. Yes. Like regular parts of the job of saying, fun, like describing masturbating as being a one-man band is the job of being a great joke writer. One of the blowjob things where she, she treated my head like a birdhouse Yes, is... You know, it's why she's so good at roast jokes. It's like that thing. But she clearly had a goal, you know, in so much as Whitney is a comedian that goes directly at things. And so she's like, I'm going to talk about Me Too. I'm going to say the word Me Too. Nikki has a prism in which she does comedy. And this was a special that was not about um, sexual assault or sexual misconduct, really. It is about... Like, not that we just need to teach young men to not rape people or not assault people, but we have to, like, determine what good sex is for both people. Yeah. And, like, that is what this special is about, which is, like, the sort of throat clearing of, like, I'm a woman and sexual object. Isn't that cool to be, like, I realize I want sex to be good. Yeah. Not just to be a thing I do to be cool. Yeah. And being a complete part of her. Like, it's not, like... There's so many contrary points of view that she has about the type of sex she wants to have and who she wants to have it with. But the core of it is like a very clear message that I think is the step back even before we like like what Whitney has this question of like what do we do now of the many things is like people should have sex they want to have and and not prior not center men's pleasure around that. And it is by being an assault on this subject, yeah. you can't escape it. Yeah. You can't escape the point of it. You can't leave it being not knowing what she wants to say about sex in America in 2019. I think it's interesting to use the word assault um, about a special that is about yes. sex. And I don't think it's wrong because it does feel like she is so intense and Again, like the word that comes to mind is like violent about how how inescapable yeah. this is going to be for this for this hour. My favorite sort of twist near the end is as she begins to grow frustrated with herself and her own inability to not connect with people that she's mm. having sex with. Because it's really what's happened to you as the audience over the course of yeah. this special. Is At the beginning, you are in this relationship with her where it's like she's just telling meaningless sex jokes. Yeah. And by the end, you're like, oh, Dang it. I am deeply invested in this person. So it is once again uh, this really remarkable case where a special performs the thing that it is trying to thematically explain. Coming in at number four, Gary Goldman's The Great Depression. I watched it in uh, I was traveling mm-hmm. and it was late at night. I was in a hotel room in a different country and I, I just sat there. I was like, I'm just going to watch the beginning of this and then I need to pass out because I have other things going yeah. on. And I did not. Every time I would attempt to look away so that I could break the spell so that I would just get like do the other thing. I I was back in this because it is such a tender, tender mm-hmm. thing, this this special. More than one special this year used documentary footage. Yeah. And the thing that I found so effective about the way Gallman uses it is that he introduces you to who he is and to the reason that he is doing this special the way that he is. He puts himself just in- vulnerably in front of yeah. you. And just when you think... There is no more intimate, vulnerable way of understanding this person than he shows you bits of his life. Yeah. But with the specific purpose of helping audiences understand even more about what his experience has been like, yeah. what his world looks like, 
the difference between this incredibly like large and attractive man on stage and the contrast with how he himself feels mm-hmm. that you see differently when you see him with his girlfriend, that you see his apartment, that you see other people, his mother, his childhood home. It is a special about his personal experiences and about how to make comedy out of it. And I wouldn't wake up refreshed. I would wake up groggy and hopeless. And then if I did a show and got through a day, I would reward myself by getting a pint of ice cream. And I would always say to myself, just eat half the pint. But invariably, I have this like obsessive compulsion where I need to leave a flat surface. (laughs) For who, the day crew? But I would keep eating it flat. And then I'd come across a chocolate chunk and I need to excavate that. And that leaves a pothole, so I gotta smooth that over. Then it starts to melt along the perimeter and that's gelato, you can't let that go to waste. And before I know it, I'd hit bottom, literally and millennial literally. And I would just say, just finish it, Gare, just finish it. And I would finish it, and I would put the fork down. (laughs) More times than not, I would eat ice cream with a fork, which is like an unofficial symptom of depression. (laughs) People say, well, why does that mean you're depressed? It may not, but it does mean at least that you did not possess the zest to wash a spoon. (laughs) People would say, why don't you just wash a spoon? Why don't I shower? (laughs) I didn't have the energy. The thing I think about is it it ends and, you know, there's a certain rhythm in how a special ends and it'll usually say written and performed by and then direct, you know, and I believe it ends and it says conceived by Gary Goldman and Mike Bonfiglio, who's the director. And it felt like the entire thing, once he sort of knew he was going to do material about this, that when he started developing material, the documentary was part of it. Other times when people do documentary stuff in specials, it is not that way. It's not conceived as a piece, which is like the reason it's conceived this way is because that's the way this is structured on purpose. And I think it's partly because it's hard to believe a person when they're, say, depressed, when they don't seem depressed. and Or maybe you could believe a little bit, but you don't believe it as much as when you start And you see a person do stand-up when they don't want to be doing it. Yeah. And be bad at it and just be like, this is bottom. Like, the fact that he has that recorded is, I think about that it's something that he probably would not want to show people. In in the broadest sense. Like, obviously, once he, like, detached himself and was like, I'm an artist or whatever and I want this to be there. But it's, it's a level of vulnerability that is actually vulnerable. Yeah. And is actually scary. And that person... If he knew that a lot of people would watch it later, would be terrified that someone did this. And you can, so though Gary Goldman in the now, you're like, hey, he's just creating a special. That person was real. Yeah. And that framed all of it. So then you have the fact that Gary Goldman is great at writing jokes. And he gives you both. He gives you that depression is hard and being a giant sensitive person is hard. But he allows you to live in the space of like this is true and you're living a person's hard experience and the window of like this might not be hopeless mm. which comedy does not have to have a point does not have to make society better i've wondered if that should be a goal like should we judge stand up especially as it is as you're talking to other people as does it make the audience better than it was beforehand it's a weird standard, but maybe it is one. You know, I it was a thing that I've been reckoning with ever since Louis C.K. Because Louis C.K. for so long was the gold standard of what comedy was. He's he's supposed to be truthful, but he obviously wasn't. You know, he was essentially I would say he's a confessional comedian, which essentially was confessing things, not everything, but confessing things and having the audience absolve him of guilt. Where other comedians like Gary here, like Maria Banford, especially like Tignataro are honest in a way to make everyone better and give people vocabulary to articulate things that are impossible to articulate. And especially when you're at the bottom of it. 
You see him at the bottom. He is not the guy. He's sitting down. He is not the guy who can have it perfectly. He who has the perfect metaphor for how he knows a person he has depression. Is barely articulate at yeah. all. Like yeah. you, you can tell that he almost cannot say words in yeah. that moment. So the contrast of him being able to be like, when I see someone with fork prints in ice cream, and I know that that something's the matter, is like the beauty of. Th- of using stand-up as imagery, of painting pictures, and having that in one space is powerful, and I do think probably, like, improved lives of people. I mean, that's why he did it. Like, because people are like this. He was, you watch him at Colbert. He did a Colbert set, I think, probably a year and so ago, and it's about depression, but he does not say it is. It's very weird to watch because he just talks about, like, hey, I'm sad or something, and he's like, he tells all the jokes that sort of are the ending of the thing, but it's not about depression explicitly, except for it obviously is. Yeah. And it's interesting to then watch how it fits into this piece where it's now presented as hopeful. It's really interesting to – we associate sort of certain types of comedy with certain types of comedians. The storytelling people are darker and they tell really pr- whatever. And like Gary is like the joke writer's joke writer and he's doing this. And at minimum, it's like it's just interesting to see that clash. Also – to come back to this question about whether comedy has a responsibility to be ethical, I agree with you that it does not. Yeah. But I do think that there is something there is something impressive about it because so often unethical comedy feels easy. Mm-hmm. And so it's not that it has a responsibility to be ethical, but that when it is, it's like you're playing on a harder level. Yeah. And that is a little bit of what I got from from this. Um I also think the yes, the 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 fork prints and the ice cream is just one of those images that you that sticks. Yeah. And he's just that is you know what he does. Number three Mike Birbiglia is the new one, mm. which I don't know if it would be my number one. It definitely probably would be my number two, yeah. which is why, again, it doesn't matter. But uh, <laughs> what did you like about it? You come back – I mean, I come back again to identification. I yeah. cannot avoid the fact that I'm a parent of young children. And so I watched this as a parent of young children who was moved by the material because it is something I think all parents wrestle with that is very hard to articulate. And so whenever somebody comes along and points at a thing that you don't know how to say but then they do, yeah. it's very powerful. The experience of watching it – feels very different mm-hmm. than, say, the experience of watching Nikki yeah. um, that feels different than Gary, that yeah. feels different than, I think, all of them. And uh, I, for, it, has big, it has big high school speech class mm-hmm. energy, which is that it feels like a performance in a way that, once again, a lot of specials try to hide. Yeah. The difference between the performativeness of this and of something like Julio is that the the unexpected thing about about my favorite shapes is that it is a set and yet he is clearly more himself in that set mm-hmm. than he is in the real world. This is here is a rug. Here's a stool. And when he comes out at the very beginning of the special, he threads the mic and then puts it on his ear in the most explicit, like, I'm bowing my head and then I put my head up and that's how this thing starts. And so it teaches the audience to treat him as a character Mm -hmm. in a way that that I think works differently than a lot of specials where – Again, you are trying to hide the fact that that is a character that you are creating. And so the whole performance of him, of that character changing over time, hinges on the uh, the beginning establishment of this is a perform this is yeah. a space this is a story that i am telling you this is me but it is also me performing a version of myself so that i mean i think that is something that just makes it f- feel more one man showy yeah whether it is a stand up or isn't i'm the if you call yourself a stand up and you do something then you're doing stand up but like he is using the vocabulary of stand up to do a thing that really has not been done at this level mm-hmm. i i mean I, I'm not familiar enough about sort of British schools of stand-up, but ultimately they're conceived differently. He's He conceives his shows as stand-up comedians do. He works on it by 10-minute chunks and he builds these things. 
And, you know, how he used to do his story shows was he's essentially this character that's Mike Birbiglia and the narrator that is Mike Birbiglia. Mm-hmm. And that is there, but he does not cheat. He, it's easy to cheat. It's easy to let yourself off the hook, which is, and he would do in instant ways, which he goes, he would go to the audience, goes, I know I'm in the future also or something like, and or I, you know, like basically things being like that guy. You, that step, talking, out, you step outside. But he doesn't do that here. And I, I mean, I've talked to him about why, and it's because he really wants to feel this person go through it. I've seen the show three times. I saw it off Broadway, I saw it Broadway, I saw it on Netflix, and then I saw it on Netflix again, so I saw it four times. And yet, when he see when the first time he looks at his daughter and she laughs, and he acts, that is acting. He is not being a stand-up comedian. He sh- he is shot like you would shoot acting. It works. Even yeah. again, I because he earned the hell out of that by telling a story and he says he doesn't want to tell that story about the red light. I've talked to him. He really does not like that part. He doesn't even think it's like good comedy. I'm walking with my friend of a friend. I'm thinking these are bars or strip clubs. And I say to my friend of a friend, like, should, should we go in one? <laughs> he says, yeah, but we got to choose carefully. I said, how come? He said, it's expensive. I said, how expensive? He said, it's about $200. I said, $200 to go into a strip club? He says, no. (laughs) They're prostitutes. I said. We got to choose carefully. (laughs) I want to be very clear. I don't want to tell you this story. It's the only story I'll tell you tonight. I genuinely do not want to tell you, but I feel like it's essential to the larger story I'm telling. But he knows it gets to the point of like, this is what a person was, and I really want you to understand that this is a change that has happened. And he does something at the end that I think is a landmark achievement in the history of comedy, which is not telling an audience something has happened, which is... He changes at the end to sort of embrace being a father without saying that. He doesn't go, and then I decided I'm going to embrace being a father. He doesn't say, I started doing more things around the house and realizing that I had to change myself. None of that stuff. That is the thing that stand-up has historically done. It is a tell-not-show medium, and it's hard to get out of that no matter what because you're talking, but he actually does it where by the end, it is the end of a story, and it's the end of this character. You are not, the narrator is sort of gone. He's sort of in it, you're watching it as if it's a play, and you sort of visualize it. And the skill of acting, the skill of the writing of it, but really the thing that he's the greatest at, and I wish he can like literally be a dramaturge for everyone, which is sort of like creating a piece mm. that feels like, a perfectly fit thing is so hard and a lot of stand-ups are scared of because they want to feel of the moment and a lot of people do one person shows and they're effective in their way but like that level of actual storytelling capital S storytelling not just the in-story stories which he's also incredible at is like a th- is the high watermark of whatever that is and is in the form's ability to do that. Yeah. Can we talk about the surprise? Yeah. I think uh, we can. Okay. I saw it off Broadway. It was a shock. Yeah. Then when I saw it on Broadway, I was like, I wonder how people are going to react here. <laughs> it's more shocking because it's Broadway. Yeah. And then I like in the Netflix special. So <laughs> I guess if you haven't seen it, spoiler alert, skip ahead a minute if you don't want to hear a, a surprise in a stand-up special. Um once he comes home with a baby, a bunch of toys drop. And in the special, what they do, which is fun, is someone, like, yelps. I don't know if that person was really there, but it was very useful to, like, 
convey, and then the sh- it's the first time, the first time and only time they show the audience. Not true, because oh, at, the be- at the beginning, oh, be- there's like an 11 year old oh, yes. who is sitting in the second row, and so he has to acknowledge the fact that there is a child who is uh, present, which is a very interesting device. It's I also think. a move he does to be like, this is stand up comedy. Yeah. That's like a thing he does in a lot of his shows to be like, this is comedy. You're in a comedy show, so you can sort of set certain expectations to defy. What was it like to see it only the first time? I immediately wished I had seen it live instead. Yeah. Because the thing that I knew happened that I, my body almost registered, but I could not actually feel was the like whoomph of wind yeah. of all of it landing on the stage. And I was also then instantly trying to like recreate how he must have to stand in a very specific place so that he doesn't get hit and then like how he has to sort of like reel around in this in this layer of toys to find specific objects because yeah. there are specific objects that he then has to look for and then uses in the stories i feel i thought because the change that happens internally happens subtly and later mm-hmm. It's so effective to have this huge, dramatic, physical, external change be an earlier yeah. one because it you register this dramatic – because it is exactly what the experience of bringing home a baby is actually like. You register this dramatic physical thing that has happened and it takes your entire self a long time to catch up to actually having mm-hmm. the change register. And not only not only was I so impressed with that toy drop because of how I just immediately saw it and was like, oh, my God, this is the most right thing I have ever seen. It's very hard to find ways of changing a set that doesn't – that is that both is a gimmick mm-hmm. and and – is almost like a one-to-one representation of what it of the thing that it is trying to be a gimmick of. Yeah. Um, and because it is so, uh, uh, dropping a lot of toys is not quite the right. It is like it is like suddenly the stage is now covered in stuff that he just stumbles around yeah. for the rest of the show. And the way he is physically off-put, he can't walk anymore, yeah. is so dramatic and so useful in what he then needs to wade through in order to get to where the end of that story, where he wants that end of that story to be. Most weight loss programs focus on restriction and inflexible routine, which is why most diets fail. But Noom isn't a diet. It's a weight management program that uses psychology and biology to help you develop healthy, sustainable habits. Noom believes that weight loss starts with the brain, and their daily lessons are tailored to help users understand the science behind food cravings and eating choices. Whether you want to lose weight, increase physical activity, meet a health goal, or simply change the way you think about food, Noom can help you build healthy habits while still enjoying your favorite foods. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from 26.2 Team Milk and their new docu-series, Running Sucks. Is running the worst? Yeah. Do you love it? Do you hate it? I hate it so much. (laughs) I hate it so freaking much. That you're a real runner now! I hate it. (laughs) I'm Abby Ayers, a 37-year-old mom from Utah who found herself running across the Manhattan Bridge in my first race ever. Running Sucks celebrates women who run and the running communities that carry them across the finish line. Running helped me in so many ways postpartum. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. For every person like you, I'm telling you you belong and I'm telling you you can do it. I never thought the words would leave my mouth, but yes, I'm planning on running a marathon. I can't even say it without laughing, because, like, who would have thought? 
Watch Running Sucks at runningsuckstheseries.com and learn more about how Team Milk is helping women runners across the country conquer their next course. Number two is a another special, in my opinion, about children and having children. Mm-hmm. Anthony Jeselnik's Fire in the Maternity mm-hmm. Ward. I don't know if I decided to back into this opinion about the special, but I always thought it because I when I interviewed him, I asked about it. But like this special is obsessed with not having kids. Yes. I, you know, when I talked to him on this podcast, it was about the joke about dropping babies. And it was in this period that he talked to his therapist and his therapist, do you want kids? And he goes, no. And everyone around him was having kids. But then you watch it and you're like, literally every single joke ties back to family and having kids. To the yes, point of the abortion, is, right? It is obsessed with, yes, it's not wild. reproducing. I don't even know if he would say it is. I'm, the thing that I find really fascinating about its obsession with his obsession with children and its obsession with children is that there is there are few more efficient ways of saying that is a bad person mm-hmm. than by putting a child in the room and saying, I hate that child <laughs> yeah. and I want that child to be hurt. Like that we have a human shortcut for you are a good or a bad person. And it is, do you respect the innocence of chi- the innocence yeah. and perfection of childhood? It is a taboo that is that is broken all the time because children actually are assholes mm-hmm. often. And so we have sort of come around to the ability to talk about like, OK, but it's hard and they're assholes. And that's the sort yeah. of new one wrestling yeah. with they are a self. But to go so far as to physically harm them is the line that you are not supposed yeah. to cross. And so because the whole special is him making himself into an unreliable narrator and twisting back and forth between whether or not he actually believes and says and is this person to create this specter of the most good that can be and then put yourself polar opposite to it is just a really effective rhetorical device. So he can come back to it again and again because it is just as shocking and upsetting every time. I'm going to blow your minds right now. I'm going to blow your minds at the back of your heads. You ready? I don't like kids. There's this nine-year-old girl, tiny little nine-year-old girl. Tiny little nine-year-old girl lives in my neighborhood. The glass eye. Scares the shit out of me. (laughs) Terrifies me to my very core. Anytime she sees me, she just fucking chases me around. Until she gets her eye back. It is the worst. (laughs) Now that's a fun joke for you guys. I'll explain why. You know, he has a style of comedy of, you know, it's the sort of jewel box, little beautifully constructed things about very bad things that have these twists. And... They're often the- thematically not connected. They, they're more often touching on taboo subjects. Well, taboo subjects that are actually the subjects that everyone, t- like these agreed upon taboos, so they're not actually taboos. So it's just sort of like, oh, you say you can't do a joke about this. I'm going to write a joke about it. And it's sort of defiant. And all you get from this guy is he's good at writing jokes and he's defiant. And that is like not a particularly interesting portrait of a person. Yeah. Where this, which is my favorite of his specials, I mean, probably other people might like other things, but what I like is this is a person who you're like, we know he's not this guy because he's not murdering children, but you know he's a guy who went home and who thought this thing and decided to put all these jokes together. He could joke about anything. We know he can joke about anything, but this is what he decided to joke about. This is what he picked. And it's a cute special in ways because he's sort of like... So enamored by himself in a way that is adorable. Like, it's like actually very silly in how serious he decides to take it. And it's also so indulgent in a way that only a person who never will ever want to have kids would be, in that he talks so slowly. Yeah. No one with a kid I can imagine could talk so slowly, or the kid would be talking. 
Yeah. Not only does he talk slowly, he took out parts where the audience reacted to pauses. Like he wanted it to be this thing, which is a one fits into my sort of desire for specials to be treated as different than just what was it like that night. But it also is insane to watch. Like you're like insane to watch. The moment when I realized what was happening is fairly early in the special where he he tells a joke. It is very funny. The audience has a large reaction. It takes them a while to settle down again. And then he tells them, if you keep doing that, it's going to take too long to get through this special. And I just, I, it is so weirdly endearing to watch someone take themselves that seriously and also find the pre- the experience of being that serious so entertaining. Yeah. Um and it's the, the other reality of having of making children the rhetorical device in this special constantly is that it is balanced against the the self-indulgence of his essentially childlike yeah. qualities which are you told me I can't do that thing so I'm going to do it. Yeah. Um, you told me to hurry up, so I'm slowing down. You uh, want you want to react in a certain way, and so I will stop you from yeah. doing those things. And there's like a there's like a three year oldness yeah. to it that is perfect because you're not allowed to be that yeah. as an adult. It captures the paradox that good stand up could have, right? You're talking. We it's often as we said the sort of difference between the self and the character that you're playing, yeah. and. Anthony was always obviously this character, as, as all these people are, but it's such a distinct thing because he's not murdering people. Like, I think that is a step that is further beyond what is normal in the sort of quote unquote edgy comedy sphere. And it was funny as a sort of a thing to sort of listen to, like, oh, it's interesting that someone's doing it and it exercises that part of your brain. But how he weaves in parts that are him. And not, and yeah. you don't know which parts of which part aren't true. And obviously, he hasn't dropped a baby, but he has thought about it, obviously, because he wrote this joke. And he's probably thought about it when he wasn't. And then he literally took his friend to get an abortion. That is clearly true. And which part of that is, which part of that story is not true? Mm. You will never know. And yeah. that is a very exciting place to be with art generally and hard for stand up. And it's very hard for stand up right now. Because you have people who are either virtue signaling that I'm on the right side, don't worry, this is like I'm a good person because it's easier to do, that's safe. Or the other thing of safe, which is like I'm a, I'm just saying bad things and you just have to trust I'm a good person. I'm naughty. Yeah. And that, it's like, as I said, they're bad little boys. And to sit in a space and that is what his – that's the tension that he plays with, which is sort of like – it's not just like, oh, can you laugh at that thing? Like, who cares? You can laugh at anything, you know, but it's a matter of, like, you're laughing at this person and you get a sense of it. And, you know, I forgot about it until when I was rewatching, which is he tells this long story about abortion where he's like, I'm a great friend. And you're like, wait, you sort of are, but you're making, like, that's the joke. And then it ends. So he's talking about taking his friend Jessica to an abortion. And it, and it ends with, for Jessica with love, with this little message before it says written and performed by Anthony Jeselnik, which is actually probably even a bigger gesture. And that is, one, is really lovely, but also a, it's a way of underlining that, like, this is his version of being personal, It's which is a person who does not like being personal. And it is him making it clear that he wants, like, I think that he has always wrestled with, which is how do you make it clear to your listeners what the point of any of this is? And I think he's probably shied away from it. And it's hard for him to do because then it's hard to get to the paradox if you're just telling what do people say. And and I do think, one, there's still people who interpret the jokes incorrectly. There's inc- articles about it. But it gives it a personhood that makes it ultimately something you, you leave with that – Beyond being a collection of good jokes, and you'd be like, those are my favorite jokes, it is a, I'm leaving with a feeling about this person, which is like one of the benefits of comedy, which is you can like essentially ride along in someone's brain for a while and leave with a, a greater sense of like understanding what people can be like. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's whereas, you know, I've seen him do comedy since, and he's telling these other stories that are like even clearer to be true. And it's, you just sort of like, it's playing off both 
what you see this person is right now. It's playing off what his audience thinks this, this character should be like. And, you know, he he always wanted to be a writer and he essentially has created this this anti-hero that he like he is redeeming. He's essentially like season one, he was the villain of the thing. Season six, he's going to be the hero of the thing. <laughs> I was not expecting it to be your number two. It, it was the pace and the the um, performance of it as much as anything else. All right. Here we are. Yeah. Number one. Our number one. I saw it the first time I saw it. I was like, this is number one. It is Little Rel Howery's Live in Crenshaw. Yeah. Why is it your number one? It's gorgeous. Yeah. It's gorgeous. And it feels like this absolute achievement of a comic sensibility, of a way of inhabiting space not just in not just physically although that's very clearly what's happening yeah. here physically inhabiting space but inhabiting space in a kind of story in letting a self sort of just be in the world be in a family be in a particular moment be in a history be mm-hmm. in a culture it feels like this just it's, so we're, we'll talk. I mean, the funeral sort of thing that yes. happens in yeah. the middle is this virtuosic mm-hmm. experience where he tells a story about needing about a relative who's died, and it begins with his family calling him to ask him to help pay for this funeral, and it allows him to move through and create. All of these characters of these family members who you have never seen before, who suddenly are full people with two lines of dialogue. You know exactly who that person is because he knows exactly who that person is. Each one of those characters is a distillation that has somehow perfectly ended up with whatever two lines he gives them. And he creates this scene where you you understand everything about this story that he's trying to tell you. It is simultaneously long. It's like a big piece. Yeah, it's like 40, 45 minutes long. Yeah, it's very long and yet also is that magical thing about stories that work so well where it feels like any given point that you press on could just be a whole other mm-hmm. set of rooms behind it. And you know <clears throat> that he knows exactly where they are and how yeah. they exist. I'm like, man, look, yeah, I'm not paying for this shit. And then they did that bullshit. Let somebody want to talk to you. For my grandmother phone with that crying ass grandma boy. Oh, baby, he was trying. He went to church last week again. He joined church again and he he got baptized again. And he was, he was trying. I was, ah! (laughs) Fuck it, I'll pay for it. Grandma, go back upstairs. I need to talk to them. Okay, I'm so proud of you. That's why God blessed you. He knew you was going to take care of everybody else. You know, all right, go upstairs. Don't do all that now. <laughs> when I had him on my, my podcast, you know, I asked a lot of comedians the joke they wish they could steal or the joke. And, and he said Eddie Murphy's family barbecue s- joke, which is uh, similarly virtuosic. And is like a legendary thing. Is uh, and this is not just like oh maybe it's influence. Like this is this clearly is like yeah. I want to do one of those. Yeah. The difference is how do you make it your own and how do you make it rel and rel is you know he's a heavy hearted guy. Setting it not at a barbecue but setting it at a funeral is a distinct choice. Like obviously that happened, but you could he has family interactions that he could have set it at. Could have been anything. And. It fits who Rel is, which is sort of all these things are happening revolving around the fact that someone died. It is not like, hey, I'm walking to this guy. It's not like, and then he says this. It is about how these people act when someone has died. It's about that. It's about family in that regard. It's also family when someone has money. It's also about sort of like. Yeah. Oh, my God. The way the special does class is. Yeah. And, it's you know, it's, it's a very hard thing for comedians to talk about. And it creates different classes of his family members by how they talk, how he describes what they do for a living, what their goals are. And again, none of these people talk for more than a couple minutes. And, you know, the thing that is what Rel is so special at and and when he does these characters is he 
he is not himself in those moments. Yeah. Which is, you know, as you talked about in my podcast and the joke you talked about, um, <clears throat> where he plays his mom, he goes, I couldn't do it anymore because I've missed my mom. She was there. when he, And so when he does these people, he laughs because he's like, that's my uncle. He's here. <laughs> like it's, and you feel that. Yeah, you totally do. And, and part of that is because he is incredible at this. Part of it is because it is the one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. Oh my god! Because so uh, it was directed by Gerard Carmichael, who's a who's a stand-up comedian who, um, in my opinion, put out the best special of the decade, which is Eight, which was directed by Bo Burnham. Um, but this feels like actually the first marriage of directing and special that I've probably seen to this regard, where both people are doing things and they both accentuated the other. And Gerard had the idea, and he tells. Rel, he calls him up and goes, I want to shoot your special in this gym in Crenshaw. And Rel's like, I'm not from there. What is the association? And then you see the space, and there's this big glass window on one wall. And two things happen. One, it's, as a result, the first part of the special is shot with natural light, which you never see comedy almost ever in because comedy is an indoor medium. And then the thing that happens is the sun sets during the special. And it's a, if you had the sound off, it's just nice to watch. It's also shot on film, which is not a thing specials do because they traditionally were shot as cheaply as possible. And all of that gives a, a, a richness just to the storytelling. But it is also intentional to what the special is about without it being what the special is about. So the special is like about the relationship of a style of comedy and audiences. And because it, unlike most specials where you cut away to a person, you see the audience for a lot of it. Because they are staged behind him. Staged behind him and in front of him. And you see them. You see them react. Also often is shot so that um, the people who are sitting in front of him, you see literally the top yeah. halves of their heads as you are watching him. Yes. And Rel was saying they were trying to capture this feeling of a rally. Um, it's clearly... There's a moment in this special, which is one of the great moments in comedy history, where he talks about the the preacher who gave the sermon at the uh, funeral. And he's like, he didn't really know my grandfather, uh, my, my uncle, but he figured it out. That's the premise of the joke. And then he is then the preacher. And he does it. And he's so convincing. The audience is on, is cheering along. They stand up. He played it all great. You know, at first, he was a little shaky at first. You know, he came out there with the voice, hey, man, um, we are here to celebrate. We are here to celebrate the life of um, of Brother Larry Leonard Howry. This is the son of our beloved mother of the church, Mother Howry. This is her boy, amen. You know, you know, life, life throw you a few curveballs, hey man, and you have to, you know, just figure some things out, you know, every, Brother Larry wasn't, wasn't perfect, hey man, but, 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 he found his way back to the church, hey man, he's here now, and I, 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 he's up there with our father above, and, and, and he may not have joined church while he was here, but he's in front of the church now. He's in front of the church now. <laughs> He's in front of the church now. Hey, man. You know. you know, it's a celebration of what is traditionally black audiences as we think of it is comedy and specifically the style of comedy that Rel's descendant of, which is a Chicago school, um, which started with Robin Harris, then famously Bernie Mac, and then Rel is where audience interaction is a major part of it. It doesn't mean like they're talking or they're heckling. No, it's not but, crowd work. But you're feeding off it in a very specific way. And it's hard to capture that filmed because film specials are not live. But this feels live because time is passing in an actual way. And 
you see them. You see, they, they don't all laugh at everything, and that's part of it. Yeah. And you hear small laughs at different parts. And that is a celebration of stand-up comedy. It's a celebration of specific stand-up comedy that is transcends whatever has been done before, mixed with just, like, the material of its own is a special thing. So I had the benefit of watching Amazing Grace right before I watched mm-hmm. this, and if you have not seen that documentary, it is the live um, recording of Aretha Franklin performing the al- the live album that became Amazing Grace. And when they were filming it, they were clearly the the whole idea of making a documentary of it was this is a really single moment in history mm-hmm. that is going to happen in front of this audience with these people. Everyone entering into this is aware that they are just documenting, documenting one beautiful thing. And this, the way that this special is able to capitalize on that same sense of a single moment that feels like so often specials are trying to avoid. Yeah. They are trying to flatten out the sense of like this was just one magical night that happened so that instead it feels it is as though the craft and performance of it has to is trying to eliminate every element. Well, it's of, people being like, hey, we're just talking here. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's simultaneously, hey, we're just talking, but also um, that this is a performance that happened yeah. and that all all of the but all of the liveness of it has been smoothed yeah. out. This is a complete embrace of who knows what's going to happen. He picks up the water bottle, maybe he puts it down. He never takes a drink out of this water bottle, yeah. but he does play with it several times. He has this towel that he regularly uses because he's just sweats. Yeah. Um, and the way the camera catches the reflections of the sweat and the light and the people around him and like they have little bits of jewelry or shiny things and so it just it literally sparkles as you're watching it it's I immediately this was one of those ones where I started watching it on my laptop and I got like four minutes in and I was like nope and then watched it on my like giant tv down in my basement it was I yeah it makes the hairs stand up on your neck you know it's Gerard directed this is the second special Gerard directed I it um the first was this Drew Michaels which came out last year which had no audience I it's a personal thing that I I think that I'm obsessed with which is com- comedian's relationship to audience and it's clear that Gerard is as well you know so in his in 8 part of the lore is that he did not consider what the live audience thought of the show so he would take jokes back he would Pause for really long times. He bombed at parts to create an atmosphere that he wanted filmed, which was sort of tension and uncertainty. And then he has no audience. And then he has this thing that is a sort of celebration of audience and crowds in general. And, you know, there are people who think of stand up as sort of a replacement of church in some ways. And this is clearly church. Yeah, I mean, it's clearly just like a meeting, right? He, you know, they they said it that they wanted to imagine that, like, there was going to be another speaker after him. So it starts with the um, Black National Anthem, and then it, it goes to a step, and then a step routine, and then Rel comes out. And then you're like, well, the night keeps on going. Like, it's sort of what Rel does, and usually when he, his last special was filmed in Chicago, and he's a Chicago comedian, he's great at capturing space in his work, where you're like... You have a sense of what Chicago is, even if you don't know it. And this is partly about this crowd, and it's partly about L.A., but it's also why they call it that is that he wanted— it was deliberately a thing that is a tribute to black people in a way. That I, I guess it's like um, the Beyonce's Coachella. Homecom- homecoming is the other thing that— it um, There was a quote that I liked. All right, let me see if I had. Um, when you say Crenshaw, people understand that he means that means black. Not Baldwin Hills, not Limart Park. I did it to pay homage to the people I performed in front of, to the community. If I'm going to shoot in L.A., it, it's that. So you say Crenshaw because he wants it to be associated with a certain thing. All of this is to take stand-up, which is a simple medium of a person talking about their lives, and it essentially being funny, and to put care into each part of it. To not just care into the words and cares in the performance, but cares into the title and how the title reflects how you shoot the audience and how the shooting of the 
the color of the entire thing reflects what the, the what you're trying to say about the material is a thing that stand up in my hope is going towards i think it is a hope that is not necessarily a thing that many audiences are aware is happening but i think there are people who want stand up to be that way that Gerard is one of the people that really is pushing stand up to be that way that i will always applaud because i i want stand up to be thought of that pretentiously ultimately i want it to also be if Roy was Roy Wood Jr. just like, hey, who cares about what it looks like or how he's dressed? He's going to say, like, it should be that. It should be immediate and whatever that means. But, like, it is a malleable art form because it is ultimately as malleable as people are. And it should be held to that standard. And because comedians are doing it, finally, to the level that I think they can, I will always be like, that's the best. I don't, like, I don't care what is, I don't care if that wasn't funny. Like, it was funny, and he's incredible at it, and you laugh at it. But you're just like, this is an hour that is unlike any in an hour and makes comedy better for it. I I wish that it had not come out right at the end of the year because yeah. it's, it's just getting buried in all kinds of everyone else's stuff. But the great thing also about this is that it will just be there for anyone who wants it. Like, it will be it will be – it's not like Trump jokes yeah. where it's going to feel – dated or oh, different. Least, no. I mean it's it's nice. It's the last great special of the decade, whatever that means, whoever that means anything. I mean it's it's to me where like Gerard released the best special of the decade and this is sort of like one of the great specials of the decade. It's nice that we were entering into another decade, which is meaningless, but it's not because we're all aware. We all have to make meaning out of these things. This <laughs> yeah. is how we count our we lives. We are narrative creators. <laughs> yeah. It's nice that it's this. It's nice to be like that moving forward, this is an example that will be used. Now, everything won't be this way, and I don't want stand-up to be all one thing because then what's the point? But they're continually raising a bar, and I'm, you know— you know, here I am trying to wrap it up. Um, I'm excited that this is a direction and it's yeah, going. absolutely. I do think that I was trying to think about, like, what version of this I want to see. I, have you ever – you've never been inside Glossier, the makeup place in um, in New York, where it looks like you're walking into a vagina? Like, it just is so <laughs> I, pink. I don't know. I'm – I, I – 50-50 that I, I probably would have remembered, so let's say I have. Yeah, yeah. This is what I want a woman to do a special inside of in the next decade. If somebody could please figure out how to make a special inside of skincare as a problem. Yeah. That's what I that's my hope. I mean, there's definitely people that are doing it who are like invested in the idea of stand-up specials being these things. A twenty four is producing a lot of them. A twenty four produced this, it produced Anthony Jeselnik's. Like, it's clear that someone has a bee in their bonnet that is like us who's like, oh, what have we said in these spaces? What does it look like? I mean, like, and it should be said that these people, you know, Marie, the special partly this decade also had Maria Bamford do a special just for her parents. And that is also a playing with spaces and audience. And I think that's oh, one yeah. of, lots of ways yeah, of but doing I mean, it. But it's like one of the many, I think, and that shot really lo-fi. And I think in many ways she is who in my opinion is like maybe the, the best comedian working is that is part of it. But it's there's many different ways of doing it. And I think it is, you know, there's a part in Bo Burnham special where he sings at the, he sort of films it and it's obsessed with performance and audience. And he then sings a little song afterwards that's just for the home audience. And he's sort of like, oh, I hope you laughed or like sort of like, I hope you just sort of like, breathe out your nose acknowledging that the stand-up special is not what stand-up is like live stand-up is a form that's a craft that is also this art form but ultimately is like a different thing getting an audience to laugh is a thing to do and the thing at home you're not gonna laugh as loud as you do in front of people that like just laughing is a social thing so what you can do is create fascinating objects create interesting things create images of how you view stand-up or you I mean like and sometimes you know as I said like it could be phrases that you'll never forget but like what Rails did is just like that once you sort of realize the time of day changing and you see it just at what is ultimately the magic hour it is a brilliant time to do it 
it's like the only art form that is so I mean there's probably should be more concerts that are filmed this way but and maybe there have been but you get natural light full day and it's possible that they shot over four hours in sort of condensed time but who knows there's probably like 5,000 more family members that rel ran through <laughs> but like that is a thing that I will, I will never forget yeah. and every all stand up I watched there on forward will be shaped on like that is what I think of as good stand up yep Anything else? No. About Santa? Mm-mm. No. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. That's it for another episode of Good One. You can stream Nikki, Mike, and Anthony's specials on Netflix and Gary and Rell's on HBO Go and HBO Now. Good One is produced by me and Mike Comte with production assistance from Ed Cuervo. Justin D. Wright did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. And hey, if you know anyone who might like the podcast, maybe tell them. What the heck? You can email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Have a good one. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.